Well, if you will open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive, or life, because of righteousness. But... If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Holy Spirit who dwells in me, I pray that you will speak to us this morning. That you will teach and bring revelation to the hearts and the minds, Lord God, of your children. And that you would bring invitation, Lord, to the hearts and minds of all those who have not made a decision to follow Christ. For us, Father, it matters not if it's one or a million. For every person saved causes the angels in heaven to rejoice and we along with them. This morning, Father, you have remarkable truth before us. And I pray that we will receive it with joy and gladness and exultation in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. All right, you're a little bit louder every time. That's good. That's good. It is Easter Sunday. And it's raining. Welcome to Washington. In 1933, a man by the name of Alfred Ackley wrote a hymn sung by millions, especially on this day, although rejected by some. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy. I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always there. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. But some object. Even among Christian circles, there are some who won't sing that hymn because it's too subjective. And some decry the song's unreliable appeal to personal experience. He lives within my heart. What is that? (laughs) Gang, it better be personal. If it's anything, a relationship with Jesus had better be personal. Because things like joy and affection, passion, are these not subjective things? And yet without them, a life trying to follow the Scripture is dry. You search the Scriptures, Jesus said, because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. 
And so the subjectivity is so much a part of our relationship with Jesus. However, that being understood, I walk with Jesus on a foundation of objective truth. It's not an either or. If you have a subjective faith that's not grounded in any fact, any doctrinal understanding, that faith is going to waver. Even as you waver emotionally. But if you have a wholly objective faith with no passion, no emotion whatsoever, man, tell your face, Jesus rose. Hallelujah. We above all people have most reason to rejoice in this world. Regardless of the terror attacks and the bombings and the threats and the anger and the bitterness and the vitriol. No, we can rejoice. A relationship with Jesus, in some ways, is like a healthy marriage. And the Bible even compares it to a marriage. A healthy marriage is both emotional and tangible. There is the inward desire. There is also the informed dedication. Marriage is both subjective in emotion and objective in truth and in commitment. In the same way, subjectively, I experience God, and I can tell you, every day. A day does not go by that I don't in some way or another experience God in my life and in this world. Well, that's completely subjective. I understand. Objectively, we have the creation around us. We have the sure Word of God. A Word that's been fulfilled archaeologically, historically, prophetically. Greater still... We have what we're going to talk about today, the reliable, absolute, stone-rolled-away eyewitness testimony of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is objective. And it's subjective. Because it makes me feel wonderful. But let's take a moment and deal with the criticism of subjectivity. Our believers just a bunch of dumb bunnies. Bunch of basket cases. You know, would you say that defines us? Is is the resurrection too extraordinary to accept? Are we hopping down the wrong bunny trail? Listen, for all the critics and all the cynics and all the skeptics who've got a bee in their Easter bonnets, one week after the crucifixion of Jesus. One of his most committed followers might have thought Christianity was hollow as a chocolate bunny. Listen to the story. John chapter 20, verse 25. It tells us the other disciples were saying to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days... His disciples were again inside. And Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Shalom. Shalom with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God... Which, by the way, Jesus did not refute. My Lord and my God, Thomas cried. 
It doesn't take long for doubt, or I think in Thomas's case, dismay, to quench faith, to shut down the subjective end of our faith. But after eight days of dismay, Thomas did believe. Objectively, there was no way he could not believe. He had to believe. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. He was before Jesus. And he worshipped Jesus, calling Him my Lord and my God. A few months later, not long after this, Peter and John were imprisoned. And then they were drawn out and dragged up before the Jewish, Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And they were asked to defend their faith. Peter and John said in Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. There is an objective truth here that you must understand. We can't help it. We've seen Him. We have heard Him. How can we not then talk about Him? Less than 30 years later, 30 years after Jesus was crucified, declared dead and sealed in a tomb, Paul that once violent Saul, enemy of Christianity, Paul set sail on his first missionary trip in Jesus' name. Just 30 years. And two years later, in 54 AD, Paul wrote a letter to the seaport town of Corinth, to the church gathered there, and said these following words. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul is laying out objective fact, not subjective feeling, not blind hope, blind faith, fact. And he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. 500! Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul would say, I saw him. Objectively. There was no doubt who I was talking to on that road to Damascus. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I marvel at Paul's risky venture in writing that letter within such a short amount of time of the death, burial, and so-called resurrection of Jesus. That Paul puts it out there. I can almost imagine some of the other apostles saying, Paul, if you tie this thing to fact, we're all in trouble. If in fact it wasn't true. Paul wrote this 30 years after the thing happened. Witnesses. Witnesses were all over the place. Witnesses were attainable. They were reachable. They could be called into court. They could testify. They could tell the truth of what their eyes had seen and their ears had heard. And my question to you is, how many witnesses are required to accept a fact? Just two according to biblical law. We like to set up a jury of 12 to make a decision and then we bring up witnesses and depending on the case in court, there may be many different witnesses. But how many does it take? How many do you need to believe a thing to be true? One person enough? Five? How about 72? 
Try 500 who all saw Jesus walking around, living, breathing, risen, after having seen Him crucified. How many witnesses does it take? 30 years had gone by, just 30. 30 years goes by like that. 30 years ago, July, Cheryl and I were married. Just like that. Wow, how do you know you were married? Can you prove it? Well, I was there. Yeah, but you were in love. The whole thing was very subjective, okay? I've got a document signed by two witnesses. And some 350 people were present at my wedding, most of whom are still alive today. You can ask them. Check the resource. It's married in a church in Mission Viejo, California. Go find out. Hey, the proof is there. And I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't. It'd be silly to do so. Paul sets this up and therefore sets up a reality of fact that has lasted 2,000 years. And so for those who say, well, yeah, but that was, that was 2,000 years ago. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was 4,000 years ago. The truth is, there was historical eyewitness testimony of the resurrected Jesus on the first day. And within that first week. And in the first few months. And across the first 30 years. In fact, the entire first century church was a living, breathing testimony to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. People died for it. After 30 years went by, old John, another 30 years now, so this is 30 years beyond Paul. Old John in the 90s, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the last living apostle on earth, penned these words. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And, and the life was manifested, you know. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested, that was uh, illuminated to us. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And John, at the end of that letter, 1 John, will refer to Jesus as the true God and eternal life. This from one of the last, well, the last living apostle, one of the late witnesses who actually saw Jesus with his own eyes. John saw fit to write it down. John knew that there was a generation coming up that had not seen Jesus with their own eyes. Mixed in with a generation that was slowly passing away of people who had seen Jesus. And so he put down, by pen and paper, what he had seen. So that the next generation and the one after that will know that this is not based in some guesswork, some golden plates witnessed by one guy who made up a whole entire religion. No. This was seen by many witnesses. It was testified to by dozens and dozens, again, upwards of 500 people who saw him alive. We have eyewitness testimony. How do we know Jesus was raised from the dead? Witnesses. Witnesses. 
And the objective evidence is absolutely compelling. Ian Blakelock, I actually quoted this guy a couple of years ago. But for those of you who haven't heard this, Ian Blakelock, professor of classics at Auckland University, said the following. I claim to be a historian, and my approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. Oh, I know what the world says. I know what people say. Oh, that was 2,000 years ago. How can you believe it? The Bible's a book of contradictions. None of it makes sense. Skeptics, again, blowing it out of their noses. I always ask a skeptic, Someone who says, the Bible's not true. I always ask first, have you read it? <laughs> well, I don't need to read it because I've heard. Oh, so you've heard. So it's hearsay. So you're, you're living on subjective truth, aren't you? You want to be truly objective about the scriptures, read them. You want to be truly objective about history, study it. Look at it. Because the more you do, the more the Bible holds up. We have a faith that is grounded on the foundation, Paul says, which is Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't live, we got nothing. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, we are hopeless. And if He didn't resurrect from the dead, Paul says, we are to be most pitied of all people on earth. But He did live. And He did die. And He did resurrect. And all the evidence is before us. How do we know? Witnesses. But there is also a legitimate, subjective, personal reason that I sit before you this morning and tell you I believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's very simply that I know what I know. I know what I know. He lives within my heart. Prove it. I can't. But I know by experience what I know. I can guarantee you I talk to Him every day and He hears me and I hear Him. I can promise you that that relationship is real. It has defined my entire life. Now John does this. He combines objective fact with subjective feeling. He says in 1 John 4.14, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We've seen this. So we're witnesses of it. That is objective fact. But then John says, And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. That is a subjective truth. It is every bit as sound, every bit as solid as the objective, but it's true to the individual, it is true to the person who knows beyond the shadow of a doubt the Spirit of God lives, dwells within. I know this. I know this to be true. In fact, Romans 8.16 tells us the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And every believer knows this, don't you? Christians, followers of Jesus, don't you know that He's within? Now, I can tell you honestly, I've been a believer for a long time when someone asked me that question and I, and I kind of went, what if I don't? What if it's just what I've been taught? How can I be sure? And I heard the verse, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So what do you do? You ask the Spirit. 
And I started to do that. Spirit would testify. Holy Spirit testified to me that I am a child of God. I don't want any uncertainty. I want to know absolutely that I belong to Jesus. Oh, Spirit testified to my spirit. And I waited. And the lightning didn't flash. And the thunder didn't roll. But I began to know what I know. That the Spirit of Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, does dwell in me. It's a subjective truth, but it is no less true. Because you see, Jesus' resurrection story did not end on that first Easter. It was only the beginning, Paul calls him, the first fruits of those who would be resurrected. It's a great story, but it's an even greater reality. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Romans 8, 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Combination of objective fact, that is the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead as witnessed by over 500. And the subjective truth that the same Spirit who raised Jesus now dwells in you. For those who do believe, who are in Christ, this is one of the most powerful truths in all the Bible. It's absolutely remarkable. It it bowls me over. Let's get a sense of just how awesome this really is. The question's been raised, who raised Christ? Who raised up Jesus? Well, right here, Paul clearly says the Spirit did. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. So, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus, right? Problem is that you go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter is making proclamation on the very first day of the church, on Pentecost, before all the Jews there gathered in Jerusalem. And he says, This Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But... God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God did. But Paul said the Spirit did. Is it Father? Is it Spirit? Numerous other verses tell us it was the Father who raised the Son. God raised Jesus. You find that over and over and over throughout the New Testament. And yet Paul also says... The Spirit did it. Acts chapter 10 verse 40. Peter said God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. Paul said if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the Spirit raised him? God raised him? Let me throw another wrench into the works. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus Himself said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking of the temple of His body. And Jesus said, I'll raise Myself. Thank you very much. You might read all those passages and say, Well, see, that's the problem. These Bible guys need to get their story straight. But the story is straight. 
Who raised Jesus? Was it Father, Son, or Spirit? Exactly. The Father was involved. The Spirit was involved. The Son was involved. Together the Son was raised by the triune God. Now I go over that again, and if that's not news to you, that Father, Son, and Spirit were all actively involved in the raising of Jesus from the dead, understand who we're dealing with here. You've got to get, better, you've got to get who's dealing with us. If the Spirit of Him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that Spirit, let me put it this way, the Father raised Jesus, so He Himself, the Son, And also did the Spirit. Our God is three in one. And that is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. The full power of God put into effect and into play at the resurrection of Jesus. And people hear about this idea of a triune God. One God, three persons, but still one God. Completely unified. God is one. Elohim, which is God in the plural form. And they say, "Ah, how can you believe that? Because there is no other explanation. There is nothing else that works in all of Scripture. The moment you try to subvert the Son to the Father as secondary, He comes along and Father equates the Son with Him. He comes along and receives worship as God, which would be blasphemy, lest He be God. If you try to separate out the Spirit, you got to deal with the entire book of Acts talking about the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now listen again with that in mind. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. This is such an important statement. That Paul bookends the verse with the same powerful presence. He begins with the Spirit who dwells in you, and he ends with the Spirit who dwells in you. Same Spirit. And that Spirit is available to anyone. Anyone who asks. Peter said, again on Pentecost, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift, not the gifts, plural, the gift, the Spirit Himself, you will receive. And then Peter says, the promise is for you, people in Jerusalem, and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself, the gift of the Holy Spirit is singular, it is the Spirit Himself. And so again in verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you? I read that and a little shiver goes up my spine. It's not like Chris Matthews feeling about Barack Obama eight years ago. This is an unmistakable, outrageous power. In fact, it stuns me that any of us can ever just sit still and listen to it And not inside go, the Spirit who raised Him from the dead dwells in you. Wednesday night we talked about that word dwells, oiketo. It's a wonderful word in the Greek. It's a very homey word, really. It means to take up residence. It means to be at home. 
The Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at home in your life? Has taken up residence in you? Jesus promised He would. He said, I'll ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. You know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Oh, but that's subjective. Yes, but it is subjective truth. I know that I know that His Spirit dwells in me. Of course, then Jesus went on to say, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come and make our abode with him. Father, Son, and Spirit all making their home in my heart. I don't know what keeps me from just blowing apart. Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling in you. Believers, I'll ask everyone the same question I asked Wednesday night. Is Jesus at home in you? Does He know where you keep the Blu-rays? And how to work the remotes? Can He kick back and relax? Is He comfortable in your life, in your heart? Well, yeah, Rick, He is because I'm at church right now. He loves coming here, I know. He loves hearing the worship, I know. He loves when we're in the Word together, I get it. But when I go home and see the movie I want to see this afternoon, I typically leave Him at home. You can't. Wherever you go, He's there. Is He comfortable? Is He at home? Is He at rest? Verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, watch this, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from death to life was such an awesome moment. Matthew describes it this way. Matthew 27.52 The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after His resurrection they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This was not a scene from Thriller. This was not the walking dead. When I was a kid, I remember reading the verse for the first time, and I thought they came out of the tombs and started walking through the cities. None of them the living dead. Zombies with prayer shawls. No. Absolutely, 100% alive, walking down the streets of Jerusalem. Hey, there's Uncle Fred. He's looking really good for a dead guy. He's looking alive, and and he he was. And they were. Alive, and breathing, and laughing, and given a second chance to believe in Jesus Christ. That happened in the resurrection. Why? I believe because the power of Father, Son, and Spirit in raising Jesus was so huge, it just got all over everyone. And those who died in faith got raised up again. Maybe some who die without faith that they might have a chance at faith. And if, in fact, He dwells in you, His Spirit does the same thing to you. Gives life to your mortal body. Now, now we got to dwell on that for just a few minutes this morning. Life to a mortal body? What exactly does that mean in practical terms? Number one. And by the way, I've just got two for you today. 
Number one, it's a present realization. A present realization. That Greek word, give life, is zoe poreo. Zoe being life. Poreo, to bring to or to cause to. To bring to life, to quicken, is another word. We don't use the word quicken a lot, but it's the same idea. To quicken to life. That which was dead, now alive. It's a present realization. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And that word alive again is life. The spirit is life because of righteousness. Alive. Zoe. Life. Zoe is where we get our word zoo. I was at the San Diego Zoo when I was down in California. Yes, my family, my 80-year-old father, my 76-year-old mother, my 52-year-old brother, and me at 51 went to the zoo. It's what we do. And walking up and down those hills, the buzzing and the squeaking and the, and the, the roaring and the squawking and the smells and the whole thing was all over the place. Life was everywhere. The zoo is just a buzz with life. Except in the afternoon, you don't want to go because all the animals take a nap. But the life is there. And I was walking up and down those hills in San Diego and I was thinking back to that Rich Mullins song that is called With the Wonders. And the chorus of the song he sings, it flutters and floats, it falls and it climbs. It spins and sputters and spurts. You fill this world with wonders round every turn. It buzzes and beats, it shimmies and shines, it rattles and patters and purrs. And you fill this world with wonders. And I am filled with the wonder of your world. Life alive. But listen, the present realization of the life that is quickened to you when the Spirit comes into you and dwells in you is much more than the animation of life. It's much more than the buzzing of life around us. It's much more than the noise we suddenly hear at springtime when the frogs are down by the pond and the bees are buzzing the flowers. It is a different kind of life. It is life in the present. Life right now. The Holy Spirit desires, wants to, has the power to quicken you to life. To raise you up to a life of meaning and purpose and belonging all at the same time and all by His presence in you. Suddenly my life matters, whereas before it did not. Suddenly my hopes have something to lean on, whereas before they did not. Something Suddenly my, my faith has a focus on Jesus, whereas perhaps before it did not. The realization of life. And so Isaiah the prophet wrote, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, in first take, Isaiah is talking about Israel. He's prophesying that great truth of what will happen when dreary Israel comes alive. But it is also absolutely true that life captivates the dying. Life captivates the dying. Those who are alive by the Spirit of God 
captivate and yet sometimes freak out the dying world. They see someone who can't stop talking about Jesus. And the moment Jesus leaves your lips, there's a smile on your face because you know of whom you speak. You just talked to Him that morning. And the relationship you have with Him and the power of the Spirit who raised Him from the dead is in you, quickening you to life. Shouldn't our lives be radically different than the dead, dying world around us? As opposed to shuffling along like the walking dead ourselves. There is a difference. Well, I want that difference. I wish I had that difference. You do. If you have received Jesus, if the Spirit of Him who raised Him from the dead dwells in you, you do. Tap in, man. Cry out. Ladies, invite Him to do His work. Start the day and end the day with Him. Spirit, what do you have for me today? Lord Jesus, what a glorious day this this has been. Praise Your name. Begin and end and walk with Him. Ask Him to determine Your steps. We talked about this on Wednesday night. How do you walk in the Spirit? Very simply, by the Spirit. You don't determine to walk in the Spirit and force your way down that path. You ask the Spirit of the living God to walk you through life. By His power within you. And by the way, if your life does seem dead or dull or dreary, come alive. Come alive. And if His Spirit dwells in you, you already are. Look at Jesus. Think about Jesus after His resurrection. What was He? It's a simple question. Alive! (laughs) He was alive! Did someone say God? Because He was God before His resurrection too. He was alive. Listen to this. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. To the apostles, He also presented Himself alive. I I have that underlined both on my iPad and in my Bible. He presented Himself alive. He didn't present Himself dull, dreary, and dead. What's up, guys? (laughs) Guys, you know, I was tombing before. I'm back. After his suffering, we're told, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He spoke with them. He laughed with them, I'm sure. I'm sure. How could Jesus not laugh when the apostles freaked out every time they saw him? Hey guys, whoa, Lord, stop that. I mean, wouldn't you do that if you could walk through walls? If you could just appear in a group? I would be doing that all the time. You guys would hate me. Just showing up. They touched Him. He even ate with them. And we've talked about how the resurrection appearances of Jesus are marked by one thing almost more than anything else. Dinner. Or breakfast. Every time they got together, they're having a meal. They're down by the beach. They're in the upper room. They're at In-N-Out. They're just eating all the time. He presented Himself to them alive. Mary, stop clinging to me. It's been a long weekend. Go ahead, Thomas. Touch the scars. Peter, can you pass me some fish? No. He presented himself alive. Do we? Because if the Spirit who raised him from the dead is in you, dwelling in you, 
He who raised him from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That means right now, life alive. Now that doesn't mean you got to go dancing down the street like some kind of idiot. I'm not saying that you need to have a hoop and a holler in every statement. You know, kids, breakfast is ready. <laughs> you know, get in the car. Hallelujah. Yeah, you don't have to do that. But know that Christ is alive in you and that makes you yourself alive. That same surprising, wonderful power that brought life at the resurrection of Jesus is in you. And remember, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Just overflowing. Real life. Not the troubled out, stressed out, worrisome life that so many people, tragically even Christians, experience today. Rick, you sound like Joel Olstein. Okay, give me a minute. Romans 8.6 says the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the flesh. What do you think about? What is your mindset? What is your focus? Is it about temporal things that are going to burn up and go away? Or is it about eternal things that will last forever? What is your mindset? Flesh or spirit? The mindset on the flesh is death. It will die off. But the mindset on the spirit is two things, Paul tells us. Life and peace. Life and peace. Man, if you don't know Jesus, that's the promise. That is what He offers us. And brothers, sisters in Christ, if life is killing you, it is time for a reset. Hit the reset button to the mindset of the Spirit. It is such practical teaching. If you weren't here Wednesday night, you need to go back and listen. Some of the most practical teaching on how to walk in the Spirit that I myself have ever heard. And I was teaching it. Paul does this in Romans 8. He shows us how to live by the Spirit. How to walk in the Spirit. How to experience that kind of life. But it is greater still. I am not inviting you to live your best life now. That would be, to my mind, all due respect, a Christian cop-out. If this was all about just feeling good and living at large now, you know, I'm going to live my life now. Now's the time. I would be missing the real meaning of this entire verse. You see, that verb, give life. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Give life. Give life. Zoe Pareo, quicken, is in the future tense. It's not present tense that he's talking about. It's not right now, although now is so much a part of the picture. It is much bigger than feeling alive today. Paul is talking about point number two, the future resurrection. The future resurrection. You know you have not resurrected yet, right? Did you get that? I know it every morning when I first wake up. Sounding more and more like my dad every day. Stumbling into the bathroom. You know, we have a wall that would be kind of in a hallway going into our bathroom, and that's good because I just go. 
like the you know barriers up at the bowling alley just to get to the restroom, you know, and look in the mirror. Oh. Try and pick my face up off of the sink, you know, and push it back up where it belongs. Hey. You have not resurrected yet. As evidenced by the fact that these bodies keep getting older and older. And those of you in your 20s are going, what? I pop out of bed. I'm like Superman. I'm like Superwoman. I'm like, yeah, just give it a few years. I pray God waits just so you can feel my pain. No, we have not resurrected. We're redeemed. We're sons and daughters of God. We're the children of God. We're the family of God. He sees us as fully righteous even while He is making us righteous. We are the holy ones, the sanctified, while being sanctified. But Paul is talking here about our future resurrection. And understand this, just as Jesus was literally, physically, bodily raised up from the dead, so those in Jesus also will be raised up to the eternal life and to glorified eternal bodies as Jesus. Uh, Jesus said this, just prior to Lazarus' funeral, actually it was four days after Lazarus' funeral, He shows up and He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I ask you, do you? Do you believe this? Here's how Paul described it. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Oh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, that is an objective truth. Yet to come, a reality so wonderful, and i got to tell you honestly, so fantastic, if it wasn't detailed in Scripture, I would struggle to believe it. I can have assurance in the things fulfilled. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. I I can look back at the witnesses and, and the objective mind of mine says, okay, many witnesses are, that's pretty secure. You know, and we've had the Bible for now 2,000 years, and it's the same Bible they discovered with the Dead Sea Scrolls, same Isaiah as was written thousands of years ago. I mean, it all makes sense. It's all verifiable. It's all good. Okay, I got that. But then the Bible starts to describe something that has not yet happened. My resurrection. And I can't tell you how many times over the years I've gone back to 1 Corinthians 15 and just gone, Really? Days when I'm... Uh, Maybe I've just taught about our resurrection. And I go home and I go, when no one's looking, okay, it's right there. I mean, it is phenomenal. 
What Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, listen to this. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It says it. It's right there in Scripture. Paul wrote it. And so I read it again and again. It's called the rapture. The raptus in Latin. The harpazo in Greek. In English, it's the catching up. The catch up, you could call it. And it is, listen, it is our resurrection. His resurrection 2,000 years ago, right out of the tomb. My resurrection, straight up to the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's our resurrection. If you don't like calling it the rapture, just call it the resurrection, for that is what it is. And all the dead in Christ rise first. And then we go to, we join them in the air. The rapture, the resurrection, the harpazo, the catching up. It doesn't matter what it's called. I just want to be called. Call me out, Lord. You see, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't only about Him rising from the dead. In objective fact. Because He broke the power of sin and death. Death could no longer hold him, neither could gravity. Gravity couldn't hold him. Forty days after his resurrection, there on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem, as his disciples stood with their mouths hanging open, and I'm pretty sure Peter was drooling, as they looked up, blown away, the Bible says in Acts 1.9, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. In Revelation chapter 12, referring to this scene, the same word for our future resurrection was also used for the ascension of Jesus. Revelation 12 verse 5, he was caught up to God and to his throne. The word caught up, harpazo, rapture. Jesus was raptured. Jesus went up. In the same way that we will, although I think he went a little slower because the apostles needed to see it, so Jesus was like, all right, see you guys, no, let, go, let go of the robe, Thomas. <laughs> and up he went as they watched. For us, for us, gang, the Bible calls it a twinkle of an eye. Do you know how fast that is? Uh, you just missed it. The twinkling of an eye. So fast you won't even know. I mean, it's not like suddenly we're going to start losing gravity and going, oh, 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 no, we're there. Boom, we're in His presence. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to pack. I've been packing all week for Israel. Did we remember to put the the little charger thing? Boom. Why do you have to pack? Because you don't need a thing. You will be clothed in glory, fine linen, bright and clean, which is the righteous acts of the saints. He was caught up because death could not hold him. Gravity could not hold him. The earth could not contain him. Brothers and sisters, neither can it contain you. In your resurrection, which he exemplified both in his rising from the dead and in, in his ascending to heaven, the whole thing Jesus played out for us that we might understand what He was about to do to us when we are quickened to eternal life on that day. 
you know, this is the heart of the Christian faith. This is what I missed personally in church for years and years, decades. Nobody ever talked about this. We would come to Easter Sunday and everybody talked about the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, we believe it happened. Great, what does that mean? And then people would say, well, it means you can live. Great, I was living before getting up at, you know, 8 this morning to shower and be here on time. Well, it, it means you can be happy and it gives joy to your faith and, and, a, and a hope for the future. Okay, that's what I want to talk about. What is that hope? Oh, I don't know. It's just he, someday he's going to come somehow. We don't really, because we're not, because the re- book of Revelation is too hard to understand. And all that end time stuff, we don't get into that because that's just, that's too weird for the believer. It is the heart of our resurrection. You cannot talk about the resurrection of a believer in Jesus without talking about the rapture of the church because it's the same thing. That's what it is. Calm down, Rick. I know, I just, I can't. I get so excited about this because Christianity has never been, mark this, Christianity has never been about life now. It has always been about life to come. And that life to come informs my life now and innervates my life now and energizes and excites my life now even as the Spirit comes in me, quickens my life to know that I am going to live forever. And if I die, that's okay. I'll just get to see Jesus sooner than any of the rest of you. The dead will rise first. But if we're alive, oh see, this is the part that just blows my mind. Peter called this whole thing the living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus kicked the door open and now we are invited to walk right through. Listen again to Jesus' words. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Good news. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Meaning what, Jesus? Meaning, if you are alive, believing at the time of the catching up, you will never die. But again, if you die before that day, no worries. You'll be among the first to see Him. And you'll be wagging your tongue at us. Man, we were here like two twink- twinkles before you. <laughs> People in eternity walking around with two twinkle t-shirts, you know. Two twinkles. We'll be like, whatever. Just worship. Either way, His resurrection to life guarantees your resurrection to life if... His Spirit dwells in you. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. Nobody's going to get lost in the clouds on the way up. I am the way, He says. I am the truth. The actual, factual, objective truth. And He says, I am the life. Both now and to come, no one comes to the Father but through Me. Is His Spirit dwelling in you today? If you are not sure and you want to know and you want to invite, maybe for the first time or maybe you thought you did but you're unclear about this whole thing, if you simply desire the Spirit of Jesus 
resurrected to dwell within you today, why don't you invite Him? Make this Easter Sunday your Easter Sunday. Make this your first rising. And let today be the first day of eternity. Father, I pray for the fellowship now. As we get ready to respond to You and think about what You're telling us by Your Word. Lord, I pray for the freedom in this place for people to be ministered to. The freedom, Father, for someone who may never have given their life to Jesus just to walk down the aisle, to come forward, not to me, not to another person, but to You, Lord. I pray for the freedom in our fellowship, for those who are uncertain about where they're at with the Spirit of God, to come forward and ask and seek to live by Your Spirit. And I pray, Father, for those who have made their hearts an uncomfortable place for You to dwell. I pray they might come forward this morning as well and repent and call You to clean house. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.